Jesus, we thank you. You are our cornerstone, and you and you alone are only our cornerstone. I thank you for your presence here with us. And I ask that it would be you this morning behind this pulpit speaking with the same power and authority that you spoke when you walked this planet. That you would encourage and build up your, your body, your church. May it be your words, not mine, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just take a seat, get your Bibles out, turn to Matthew chapter 9. Verses 14 through 17. We read this as you're getting there. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, What do we in the Pharisees, why do we in the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Before we get in, into this passage and other passages, I want to tell you a story. I think this is a true story. I found it um, I'm with the scene is a courtroom trial in South Africa. A frail black woman stands slowly to her feet. She is more than 70 years old. And facing her from across the room are several security police officers. One of them is a Mr. Vanderbrook, who has just been tried and found guilty in the murders of many people, including this woman's son and this woman's husband. Mr. Vanderbrook had come to the woman's home one night, brutally taken her only son, shot him at point-blank range while she watched, and then this man had burned the young man's body while he and his officers partied nearby. Several years later, Mr. Vanderbrook and his cohorts returned. This time, they took away her husband. and For months, she heard nothing of his whereabouts. She did not know if he was alive or dead. Then almost two years after her husband's disappearance, Mr. Vanderbrook came back to fetch her. How vividly she remembered that night. She was taken to a riverbank, and to her surprise, she was shown her husband. And to her dismay, she saw he was bound and badly beaten. She rejoiced to see that she, he was still strong in spirit as he lay in a pile of wood. And she watched in horror as Mr. Vanderbrook and his fellow officers poured gasoline over his entire body. The last words she heard from her dear husband's lips as they set him aflame were, Father, forgive them. Now this dear wife and mother is standing in the courtroom listening to the confessions of Mr. Vanderbrook, the man who had committed horrible atrocities against other human beings. Suddenly a member of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission turns to her and asks, so what do you want? How should justice be done to this man as he has so brutally destroyed your family? Calmly and confidently, the dear woman replied, I want three things. First of all, I want to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burned so I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. 
She pauses and then continues, my husband and son were my only family. I want secondly, therefore, for Mr. Vanderbrook to become my son. I would like for him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining in me. Finally, she says, I would like Mr. Vanderbrook to know I offer him my forgiveness because I have been forgiven. Jesus Christ died to forgive. The wish of my husband was to forgive. So I would kindly ask someone to come in my, to my side and lead me across the courtroom so I can take Mr. Vanderbrook in my arms, embrace him, and let him know that he is truly forgiven. As the court assistants come to lead the elderly woman across the room, Mr. Vanderbrook falls over in a dead faint, overwhelmed by what he had just heard. As he struggles for consciousness, those in the courtroom, family, friends, neighbors, all victims of decades of oppression and injustice, begin to sing softly but assuredly, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now forgiveness is on the mind of our Lord in Matthew chapter 9. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 9 as you're there, and particularly verse 1, where we'll read the story of the healing of a paralytic. This is a story that I don't think really grasps the depth of its meaning, and to truly appreciate our Lord's words on fasting, we must begin in verse 1 to understand the flow of his thinking. Matthew 9 verse 1, and getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Behold, <coughs> some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blasphemy. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and went home, and when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So obviously, Matthew chapter 9 begins with the healing of a paralytic. But the focus of the story is not the miraculous physical healing, but Jesus pronouncing what? That his sins were forgiven. You see, Jesus came to drive men to acknowledge their need for the forgiveness of their sins. They need to repent and be forgiven. In fact, it's the hallmark of every great follower of Jesus Christ that they first must recognize their utter sinfulness. What was Jesus' first teaching? The very first words out of his mouth were what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Poor in spirit means what? You recognize your spiritual poverty. You are spiritually bankrupt. You can't earn the favor of God. So it's the hallmark of every great believer, every great follower of Jesus Christ, that they recognize their utter sinfulness. John Knox, uh, perhaps the greatest preacher in the history of Scotland, and what would, you would think to be a man of great righteousness, said this, in youth... In middle age and now after many battles, I find nothing in me but corruption. 
the early church father Augustine, whom even today the world thinks to be a great saint and man of righteousness, said this, Lord, save me from that wicked man, myself. John Wesley, the father of Methodism, renowned evangelist and pastor, worker of righteousness, wrote this, I am fallen short of the glory of God. My whole heart is altogether corrupt and abominable. You know, when it's a young believer, when I became aware of my sin and started walking with God, there was just, you were aware of how sinful I was. And you hoped and believed that, that you would mature and that you would sin less and less and less. And while that has happened to an extent, um, and you, you read ideas of, of Christian perfection, you can obtain perfection in this life and so on and so forth, but that's not true at all. I battle, as every man does, with a sinful nature, whether it's greed or lust or hatred or anger, all of that. After all these years, after forgiving so many people, after saying no to sin so many times, it is still there. And it's getting, it feels like it's getting worse. And that's just the nature of who we are. But each of these three men were considered to be men of great righteousness, and yet they knew they suffered from the same terminal disease of sin. They repented and were forgiven. There's another category of people who consider themselves to be righteous, and yet do not acknowledge their sin. In Jesus' time, they were called what? Scribes and Pharisees. And since the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day were not convinced they were sinners, Guess what? They had no desire for repentance. And therefore, they received no forgiveness. What was left for them? Only a greater condemnation. The first 17 verses of Matthew 9 focus on this reality. In verse 1 to 8, you find the first incident where an individual is specifically forgiven. And the depth of our Lord's forgiveness is on display. The healing of the paralytic, the prevailing thought of the time was what? If you're sick, if you're paralyzed, it's because of what? Sin. Sin. This paralytic was not your average sinner then. His sin was so bad, he was physically paralyzed because of his sin. And he would have lived with that stigma for years. And the Lord knew that this was the cry of the paralytic's heart. The forgiveness of sin. And so Jesus forgave him. And the physical healing was just an added blessing. And Jesus' proclamation that the paralytic's sin are forgiven naturally led to questions. If he could forgive that man, a sinner, who else could he forgive? Right? Could he forgive my mother-in-law? I don't know, but we'll find out. And to what extent could he forgive? This leads us to verses 9 through 17, where we find uh, the answer to our questions. Yes, he receives the sinners, and even the worst of sinners, but he rejects the self-righteous. Matthew presents another example of the worst kind of sinner he receives, according to the Pharisees. Let's look at verses 9 through 13, the calling of Matthew. Matthew. 
I'm assuming that Mark and Chase have their Bibles memorized because they don't have them out. So i.e., get your Bibles out since you're sitting in the front row. We are Bible Chapel, right? As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In order to show you the extent of which his forgiveness goes, Matthew introduces himself as the worst sinner. And by all evaluation of that time, Matthew was the most wretched sinner in town. And I'll explain to you why. Matthew was a publican or a tax collector, and they were a breed of people who served Rome. And when Rome conquered Palestine, they wanted to exact taxes, and individuals living in the land of Palestine would buy franchises for the Roman government, which gave them the right to operate the taxation system in a certain district or town. Have you ever watched the movie Chosen, or the series of Chosen? It was that Matthew had bought that particular spot. Okay? So anything he would get over what Rome required, he would, cl- he would collect a certain amount of taxes. Anything he could get over that, he would keep. And the Roman government, in order to keep him happy and on their side, would support him in his excesses and his abuses. It was common for tax collectors to take bribes from the rich, to extort the middle class, and yes, even extort the poor. They became hated for being traitors to the of the worst kind, amassing fortunes at the expense of their own oppressed countrymen. But there was an even more to the vile sinfulness of a tax collector like Matthew. There were two kinds of tax collectors at that time. There were general tax collectors whose job was to collect three regular taxes. You'll recognize these because we pay these. There was a land tax or property tax, uh, income tax, and a poll tax or a registration tax. And the general tax collector would add surcharges onto the tax collections to make his own fortune. But Matthew was not a general tax collector. He was a tax collector called a Mokes, M-O-K-H-E-S. His job was to collect duty on everything else. And we have the same thing in our society. We pay property taxes, income taxes, etc. We also pay other taxes like what? Well, there's a sales tax, what you buy, on the food you eat, every time you fly in an airplane, and so on. So we have taxes on airplanes uh, that pay when they land at an airport. There are boat taxes, taxes on axles, wheels on trucks, road taxes, tolls you pay to go across a bridge. You get the picture, right? Now, these taxes were collected by a Mokis like Matthew. So he was able to collect tax on all import, all export, everything bought, everything sold, every road, every bridge, every harbor, every town, everything. They would invent taxes on anything they wanted. They could put taxes on axles. They, the more axles you had, the more taxes you paid. Taxes on your wheels, pack animals, pedestrian taxes to cross a certain road or bridge, market or business taxes. 
If your business was selling fish, they would tax your boat, your dock, your fish, etc. They would open every package coming along the road, and they had the right to open every private letter to see if there was a business going on in that letter. If so, they could add a tax to that. So the general tax collectors were despised, but the Mokis were the most despised. They were unlimited in the abuses, in their abuses, they were oppressive, and they were unjust. And of the Mokis, there were two kinds. The first were called the Great Mokis. These are the ones who hired somebody to sit at the tax booth and collect the taxes while they stayed behind the scenes. They at least wanted to have some sort of a good reputation. And then there were what the Hebrews called the small Mokis. They actually sat at the tax booth themselves because they were too cheap to pay somebody else. They didn't care about their reputation. So it was one thing to be a general tax collector. It was worse to be a Mokis. But it was far worse to be a small Mokis. And Matthew was the small Mokis of Capernaum. The worst man in the city. And what is the extent of Jesus' forgiveness? What does he do? He forgives Matthew's sins. And what was Matthew's response to Jesus? He responded immediately. And the disciples, when they followed Jesus, they gave up their families, they gave up their livelihoods, and they eventually gave up their lives. But no disciple gave up more wealth than Matthew. He left behind all the riches and followed Jesus. And Matthew's so grateful that he throws a banquet. So two of the worst types of sinners in the eyes of society at that time responded to Jesus' offer of salvation, a cursed paralytic and a vile tax collector. In the last half of verse 13, let's look at that. It's the key to unlocking the passage. For I came not to call the righteous, but what? Sinners. Now this offer of salvation is extended to all, but it's only sinners who respond. Because the self-righteous and religious, they see no need to respond. And perhaps there's no better passage, you can just listen to this, a scripture that, that summarizes what I'm saying. Remember Luke 18, 9-14? Jesus says this, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Remember this? The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And there we see the utter devastating effects of a legalistic, self-righteous, work-based, ritualistic religion. In Matthew 9, 14 through 17, this is where our Lord's thoughts turn to what we call incompatibility. It happens to be through this issue of fasting. Look at Matthew 9, 14 to 17. Then the disciples of John came to him. 
saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskin. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now, even though the Old Testament prescribed how many fasts a year, do you remember this? There's only one on the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees added more fasts. They fasted twice a week. And the disciples of John in this passage, who were close to believing in Jesus, obviously were still stuck in this ritual-based Judaism of their time. So they ask, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? In other words, this is what they're saying. This is what you probably should write down of all things I say in this sermon. It's this. How is your religion so different than ours? You see that? Your religion is so different than ours. Why is that? Now, the three major, remember this, rituals or religious practices of Judaism during the time of Jesus were what? went over this in the Sermon on the Mount. Fasting, giving, and praying. This provided a religious routine, right? That the, the, the followers followed meticulously. But these external or outward rituals were the substance of their religion. As a result, they were unable to see religion as a matter of humility, of sinfulness and repentance. They saw religion as a matter of ritual, as do so many people today. Some of you come from a Catholic background. In the Roman Catholic Church, there are many people who go through the routine of what? The motions of kneeling, standing, taking communion, praying the rosary, and so on, right? Everything is external. It fails to reach the internal or the heart. This explains why it's difficult. I've tried to have conversations with college students, with other people that have a Catholic background, and, and they don't understand the forgiveness or the need for forgiveness or repentance. But it's also true in some Protestant circles. There are those who, who pray a brief prayer at dinner. They own a Bible but barely read it. They go to a church service. They sing a song. They go through the routines, but they don't know what it means to be convicted of sin to have a deep repentance in the heart and to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15, Matthew 9. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Do you know what the Lord is saying here, really? That if you go through any religious exercise apart from the heart, it is ritual and nothing more. But my followers have an internal, real relationship with me. And what we do is a result of what's happening in that relationship. Because right now the bridegroom is where? It's with them. And the wedding is going on. And you don't fast at a wedding. You celebrate with joy and laughter and food and wine. I'm here with them. This is not a time for fasting. Enjoy the relationship. 
but their religion blinded them to that reality. They weren't in a relationship. So they could only follow what they knew, which was to follow, not a person, but a ritual or a rule. Now there will come a time when the disciples fast, right? And when is that? When the bridegroom is taken. And of course this happened at the crucifixion, but until then, guess what? What do his followers do? They enjoy his presence. All of their rituals and routines prevented them from seeing reality. In answering their question, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast, Jesus, in essence, is telling them that their present religion is just, it's incompatible with his teaching. That's why he explains it through the illustration of wine and wineskins. See, their religion said they were righteous. Jesus' religion said they were vile and sinful. And their religion offered rituals. Jesus offered them a relationship. And here's the point. Two illustrations. Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. In other words, Jesus is saying this, there is no way that what I teach will mesh with your religious system. My message of an internal holiness, a holiness of the heart, and of a loving relationship, it is incompatible with an exterior ritualistic religious system. doesn't work. Verse 17, neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is, is put into fresh wine skins and so both are preserved. So in other words, what he's saying here is this, your religious system, it won't hold my truth. It's incompatible with my ministry. You have to abandon your self-righteous external religion made up of rituals, and fully embrace a relationship with me. Now hidden in all of this, Jesus introduces the supreme motive for fasting, and that is found in a loving relationship with him. Jesus says this, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now we've established that when Jesus is present, his followers do not mournfully fast. In his presence there is what? Fullness of joy. There's celebration, there's food. And this is something all his followers long for. We've also established that there is a time when his followers will fast, when he's taken away from them, which is a reference to, of course, his crucifixion. And this is the time that we are in now. So the question of whether his followers fast is definitely answered here. And this is the answer to the question of when do we fast? So when do his followers fast? When he is taken from them. But there is another question that is answered in this verse. Why do we fast? Simply put, we fast because he's gone and we long for his return so that we may be with him. This is why we fast. 
This is the best motive. Because fasting is a physical expression of a heart hunger for the coming of Jesus. Last week I told you that your hope is in what? Your hope is fixed fully on what? The grace that is to be revealed to you. It's brought to you. And what grace is that? That's when he comes again, you're given what? Praise, glory, and honor. You long for him to return to be with him. We praise him for what he accomplished at his first coming, our reconciliation with God. We celebrate that with food every time we observe communion, by the way. And in one sense, we experience his presence at the communion table. But it's precisely because of what he said, what he did at his first coming, that is, that we feel deeply his absence. As Paul said, while we're at home in the body, we are what? Absent from the Lord. And so fasting raises this question. Do we really miss him? It's a relationship, and it's a loving relationship, and he's gone, you should miss that person, right? And John Piper, I love this quote. It's very convicting. He said, the almost universal absence of regular fasting for the Lord's return is a witness to our satisfaction with the presence of the world and the absence of the Lord. But this is not the first time we've heard Jesus warning of a satisfaction with the world. Just before his second coming, he said life would be as usual. Turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17. Starting in verse 26. It says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. But his people will be crying out for his return in prayer day and night. This is what marks, one of the marks of the, the follower of Jesus Christ. Look at verse, chapter 18, verses 7 to 8. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find his people praying and longing for his coming? Again, Piper quoted this. This is what is missing in the comfortable Christian church of the modern world. Where in the West do Christians cry to Christ day and night that he would come? Where is it that he, where is that kind of longing and aching for the consummation of his kingdom? It's no surprise then that the question of fasting for the coming of the bridegroom is scarcely asked. If the cry is not there, why would one even think of expressing it with fasting? Looking for his return, longing for his return, by the way, with such an intensity that it manifests itself, and it has to manifest itself, with prolonged periods of prayer and fasting may be new to us in the West, but it wasn't in the New Testament. 
Paul said this, that a sign of authentic Christian faith is longing for his return. 2 Timothy 4, 7, 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Verse 8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. You see, the best motive for fasting is fasting for the presence of God because we hunger for him. We only hunger for someone we love, right? And we only love when we're in a relationship with someone. So following rituals and ceremonies and rules and routines, it will never inspire such devotion to fast and pray. The beginning of a relationship with God starts with acknowledging your sinfulness, repenting of your sin, receiving God's forgiveness. The beginning of a fast acceptable to God starts with a longing for his return just because we miss him so much. I pray that you are in a relationship with God and that you long for his return with prayer and fasting. And so make that your motive during this time of fasting. Fast for his presence. Amen? Father, as we close with the song this morning, remind us continually because we have a tendency to forget that while we're fasting and while we're praying that we long to be with you. We long for your return. Purify our motives. And may we find you during this time of prayer and fasting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me and we'll close with the song.